Hi there, this is Edwin Crozier again with the Franklin Church of Christ, and I want to thank you for joining us to study God's Word and learn how to glorify Him. One of the greatest objectives that God has always had for His children is that He wants us to be different from the world. He wants us to live no longer as the Gentiles live. Would you please open your New Testament with me? And let's take a survey of some passages that talk about how we're supposed to be different from the Gentiles. When the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness, one of the greatest things that God wanted them to understand in order to prepare them for coming into the Promised Land was that there was supposed to be a distinction between them and the Gentiles. They were supposed to be different. In Leviticus chapter 18, beginning at verse 1, Leviticus chapter 18, beginning at verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you live, nor are you to do what is done in the land of of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. Then in 2 Kings chapter 21 and verse 2, 2 Kings chapter 21 and verse 2, we find that when God rebuked the people, when He judged them, it was because they had violated this principle. In 2 Kings chapter 21 and verse 2, as it talked about Manasseh, he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abomination of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. God wanted the Jews to be distinct from the Gentiles. He planned it that way. He prepared them for that. Then He judged them for disobeying that principle. We're no longer the Jewish people. We Actually, we weren't ever the Jewish people. The Jewish people are not God's chosen people. Rather, the kingdom of God is the Christians. But under the New Covenant, just as the Jews were to be distinct from the Gentiles, we as Christians are also to be distinct from the Gentiles. Using Gentiles not in the sense of being a non-Jew, but in being a non-Christian. We are no longer to live as the Gentiles live. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 drives this point home. As Paul in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 said, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. This is Romans 12, 1 and 2. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your body to a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. God expects us to be different. Now that we have come into His family, He expects us to look different. He expects us to act differently. I would like for us to take a look at some passages throughout the New Testament that talk about things that should be different in our lives. We should live no longer as the Gentiles live. And there are six passages in the New Testament that I think drive this home about the changes that take place. Now, it would be very easy for me to go on and on on any one of these. And so I want to encourage you to pick up the outline after the lesson is over, because there's some things I've put in the outline that just for the sake of time we're not going to be talking about tonight, because we could probably spend an hour on each one of these points. But we just want to take a look, and and I haven't put them in any particular order, except for the fact that we're going to start in Matthew and work our way through. There's several of them in Matthew, and then a couple more throughout the letters 
that we're going to be taking a look at. But what does it mean for us to live no longer as the Gentiles live? As we consider these passages, we've got to be honest with ourselves. Taking a look at us, taking a look at the world, and taking a look at God and His standard of holiness. As we consider these six passages, we need to remember... We are not following this principle just because we are slightly different or slightly better than the Gentiles. Our standard of holiness is not being two steps behind the Gentiles, but being in step with God. That's our goal. And so we want to take a look at this. Before we do that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we pray that you would strengthen us to overcome the tempter, deliver us from his traps, and help us to turn away from his temptations. We pray, Father, that you will strengthen us to live and walk worthy of your calling and to no longer walk as the Gentiles did. Father, we realize that we've spent enough time in our lives sinning and dishonoring you, and we pray that you, through your Spirit and your Son, through your Word, will help us to put on the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to walk with the fruit of the Spirit. And we pray that you would help us to produce that in our lives, that we might have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us to be this kind of example before the world, that they might see that you sent Jesus and that we are a part of your family, that they will be convicted that you are here among us and that they will want to be a part of your family and have their sins forgiven so they might be with you forever. Father, we love you and we praise your name and we pray that all that we're doing here tonight and in all of our lives is acceptable to you, glorifying and honoring you. Forgive us, please where we've fallen short. Too many times we've, we've turned away from Your Word. Too many times we've, we've said things we shouldn't say. We've thought things we shouldn't think. We've done things we shouldn't do. We've gone places we shouldn't go. And Father, we ask that You forgive us for that. And we pray that You would help us here to be a place of support that will help one another overcome our sins and to glorify and honor You. We love You, Father. In Your Son's name we pray. Amen. The very first passage that I want us to look at is found in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. In fact, three of the passages that we're going to notice come from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Very often we'll note from the Sermon on the Mount that it's about surpassing the righteousness of the Pharisees, but sometimes we overlook the fact that Jesus also contrasts His kingdom with the Gentile kingdoms. And there are three passages in the Sermon on the Mount that demonstrate this. In Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 43, the Scripture there says, "...you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy." But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If we're going to live no longer as the Gentiles live, we must love no longer as the Gentiles love. Our love must be different. The Gentiles love, certainly those who are not Christians, they love. In fact, sometimes they can be great examples of love. They can be great examples of compassion. They can go out and do all, all manner of great deeds, loving others. The tax collectors could love. Hitler himself could love. There's a distinction between the kind of love that those in the world have and the kind of love that we as Christians are supposed to have. In the world, among the Gentiles, we love those who love us, or at least we love those who haven't actively hurt us. But when it comes to love as Christians, our love is supposed to be different. Here in Matthew chapter 5, it talks about our Father in heaven. 
And the kind of love that He has, sending His rain upon the righteous and the unrighteous. The sun to fall upon the, the righteous and the unrighteous. The, the holy and the sinner. God's love is manifested to all mankind. And in fact, God's love was manifested to everyone when He sent His Son to die for us, even while we were sinners. Perhaps one of the greatest demonstrations of love by Jesus on the earth, separate and apart from His crucifixion, can be found in John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, Jesus sets an example for us, which is just an amazing example. And in John chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come, that He would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And then it goes on to describe a demonstration of His love. Beginning in verse 5, He said He poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which He was girded. So He came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you'll understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table, he said to them, and he goes on and uses this as a teaching experience. But we'll notice that Jesus got down on his hands and his knees and performed the task of the lowly servant for His disciples. He served them because He loved them. But there are two here that stand out to me as quite amazing. First is the one that's explicitly stated as He comes to Peter. What did Jesus know Peter was about to do? He's going to deny Him three times. In addition to that, when Jesus comes to him, Peter argues with him. But what does Jesus do? He loves him anyway. And he serves him anyway. But then as he went through that group of the twelve, he came to Judas. And what did he do with that heel that was about to be lifted up against him? He washed it. There's unconditional love. There's the kind of love that Jesus wants us to have. And there's no the, the Gentiles of the world, they don't have that kind of love. The unconditional. Going to love simply because that is my role. No matter what you have done to me or what you are going to do to me. It is amazing how often, even among Christians, we lose sight that this is the kind of love we are supposed to have. And how often we will justify disregarding God's law and God's command because of how somebody has treated us and surely God doesn't expect us to be treated that way or put up with that. But when Jesus came to this world and exemplified how we're supposed to live, that is exactly what He did. He loved even those who refused to love Him back. Even knowing what they were going to do to Him, He loved them. Love no longer as the Gentiles love. We go back to Matthew. Within the Sermon on the Mount, this time we're going to be looking in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 7, the Bible there reads, When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetitions as the Gentiles do, 
For they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. He says, don't pray like the Gentiles pray. If we're going to live no longer as the Gentiles live, we must pray no longer as the Gentiles pray. And Jesus talked about what it was that the Gentiles did in their prayers. It was meaningless repetition, thinking that because of their much speaking, because they were just talking over and over and over again, that that would somehow be what it was that caused their God to act upon their behalf. First Kings chapter 18, you remember the story of Elijah with the prophets of Baal as they danced around the altar wanting their God Baal to light the fire? And they chanted and they screamed and they shouted and they hollered and they cut themselves and they danced and then Elijah started taunting them and so they did it more and more and more and Elijah said to him, what's the matter? He's a God. Well, maybe he's asleep. Maybe you need to wake him up or maybe he's gone on a journey or maybe he's busy. Maybe you should just shout a little bit louder. See, that was the type of meaningless repetition. Their heart wasn't in it. They were just thinking that if they just went through their chants over and over again, their God would have to respond to whatever they said. But that's not the type of praying that we do. I think perhaps the heart of this, we could sum up this difference in understanding that the Gentiles pray to gods that are very much like themselves. They might in their mind be super powerful. And even the worldly today, as they might turn to God, They're not praying to the God of heaven and earth who created the world, who has given us the Bible. They're they're praying most often to a God of their own creation who is really not much more than just a super-powered one of us. The pagans and their gods, as they looked at their gods, they were fickle. One day they would be with this person, the next day they would be with another. One day they'd want this, the next day they'd want something else. They were really just like us, only more powerful. But our God is not just like us. If we want to pray no longer as the Gentiles pray, we must remember what it says in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8 and 9, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 perhaps gives us a very good insight into what this means for us on a practical level. It says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, Guard your steps as you go to the house of God, and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word and impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few. If we're going to pray no longer as the Gentiles pray, we've got to realize that there is a God and we are not Him. And He is not like us. He is different from us. He values different things than we on the in the earth value. He looks for different things than men look for. And when we come to God to worship and honor and praise and pray to Him, We cannot come into His presence as though He were just like us. I appreciate the person who initially taught that you don't have to be some scholar to pray. Just talk to God like you talk to your best friend. But I'll tell you there's a problem with that. My best friend is a human. 
My best friend is not divine. Not in that scenario. And if I start talking to God like I talk to my best friend here on the earth, I'm not going to be talking to God as the God who is in heaven. And we've got to realize that. We must not come before God and offer the sacrifice of fools. We must no longer pray as the Gentiles pray. Instead of praying to the God who is the giant Santa Claus in the sky, the vending machine who, is, who will give us everything that we ask for, we need to come into God's presence recognizing that prayer is not about bending God to our will, but about bending us to God's will. And as we pray to God, we must remember who we are and who He is. In Matthew chapter 6, as we continue on, in Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 19, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. Excuse me, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor for your body as to what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Then why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble for its own. Did you catch what he said in verse 31 and 32? Don't worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek these things. If we're going to live no longer as the Gentiles live, we must value no longer what the Gentiles value. And what do the Gentiles value? Stuff. Material goods. Nice houses. Fancy cars and clothes. Gizmos and gadgets. Power and prestige and fame. Influence in worldly spheres. Political power. Those are the kind of things that Gentiles value. How often are we spending our time valuing those very same things? How much of our time is spent in the pursuit of stuff, of worldly goods that are going to burn up in judgment? And do us absolutely no good. The Gentiles value these material things. And so they're concerned about their retirement accounts. And they're concerned about the equity in their homes. And they're concerned about all these things. 
and then the stock market drops and the retirement fund is gone. Tornadoes come through and their house is destroyed. Or they might be like that man in Luke chapter 12, whose crops produce great things, and so he said to himself, Self, eat, drink, and be merry. We'll store all this stuff up and we'll just have a good old time. But that night, his soul was required of it. And he didn't get to enjoy a bit of it. It was passed on to somebody else and who knows what they were going to do with it. What do we value? In Philippians chapter 3, Paul demonstrated. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8. Actually, let's back up to verse 7. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7, Paul said, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Paul had prestige. He was growing in his political power among the Jewish nation. And he gave all of that up. And how crazy his friends and family must have thought that he was. But there was something he valued more than all of that, and that was gaining Christ. How much more important that was to him. He would give up so much if he might gain Christ. I'm so amazed about sometimes the, the quandaries that we find ourselves in, and it's interesting how often we've minimized things. We talk about, well, can I miss church for this? Can I miss church for that? And I'm not going to start drawing any lines for everybody, but you've got to think about this. Perhaps we should just call it, quit calling it missing church and realizing that we're not assembling with the saints when they've gathered together to stimulate one another to love and good deeds and to worship God because the reason we do that is so that we might gain Christ. And it's true that your son might win the Little League Championship and be the star pitcher. It's true that your daughter might spike the winning volleyball. But how good is that going to be if because we put those things above gaining Christ, they lose their souls? What are we valuing when we make those choices? Psalm 19. What an amazing psalm. And I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't believe that yet I have attained to the level that David has here in Psalm 19. This is something that I'm working on. But you know, I'm amazed that David in Psalm 19, he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. In verse 8 he says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. David says, if you put a pile of money on over here and you put God's Word over here, I want God's Word. How many of us would say that? Here's a very interesting test, something I read in a book recently, in a book called The Kingdom of God, The Kingdom That Turned the World Upside Down. He just asked a question. He said, let's calculate within our week. How much time within our week do we spend in the pursuit of material and earthly goods? 
pursuing them, caring for them, and maintaining them. And how much time in contrast do we spend in pursuit of spiritual goods? In pursuing and maintaining them. I'm not sure I always come out very well on that. If we want to live no longer as the Gentiles live, we've got to learn to value no longer what the Gentiles value. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2, Paul said that if we have died and are hidden with Christ, we must no longer focus on the things on the earth but look to things above. Which would we prefer? A million dollars? Or Christ? In Matthew chapter 20, we learn the fourth issue that is brought up in the Scripture about our contrast with the Gentiles. In Matthew chapter 20, beginning at verse 25, we learn that if we're going to live no longer as the Gentiles live, we must leave no longer as the Gentiles leave. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, Jesus called them to Himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be the first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. The Gentiles, they didn't want power and authority to be able to help those who were under them. They wanted power and authority because it meant they got what they wanted. They would lower their authority. They would look at those who were under their authority as their subjects and their slaves who were to do their bidding. But Jesus said, that's not the way it is to be among you. The leader is to be the servant. And whether we're talking about leadership within the home, within the congregation, on the job, at school, with our peers, whatever we're talking about, leadership for us is not about power and prestige. It's not about getting our way. It's about serving. Jesus exemplified it there. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28. Son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve. Here is deity. God coming in the flesh. Why? To serve pathetic people like us who have sinned and spit in His face and denied Him and turned from Him. And our leader, our King, the Creator of the world, came into the world and served us. That's leadership. Romans chapter 12 and verse 10. Romans chapter 12 and verse 10. Paul wrote, We should let love, excuse me, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. The Gentiles seek honor and glory for themselves, but the leaders who are like God, Seek the honor and glory of others. They seek to serve others and provide for them. No matter where their capacity of leadership is. It's not about getting our way. It's about helping and serving others. If we're going to live no longer as the Gentiles live, we must lead no longer as the Gentiles lead. And the passage that caused me to start studying this and taking a look at this in Ephesians chapter 4, we learn that we must walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. In the book of Ephesians chapter 4, In the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, beginning at verse 17, 
In Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 17, Paul wrote, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. He says, don't walk like the Gentiles walk. How do the Gentiles walk? They walk in stubbornness. They walk in rebellion. They walk in passion and seeking after their own lusts and pleasures of the flesh. They walk doing just whatever they want to do. That's how the Gentiles walk. That's how the worldly walk. And if they have religion, and yes, some of the worldly, many of the worldly have religion. Many of the worldly even claim to have Christian religion. But when they do, it simply is an extension of themselves. Seeking what they want. Allowing what they want. In fact, Paul warned in 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, he charged Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. How many people will leave churches just because they don't like what's being preached? And can they find somebody who will preach what they want to hear? They absolutely can. But when we're doing that, when our judgment on deciding where we're going to assemble is what if we're hearing what we want to hear, we are continuing to walk just as the Gentiles walk. Because it is not about us. It's about submitting to God. What did Paul say? He said that we are to walk in a manner worthy of Christ. We need to remember Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12. In Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12, the proverbialist said, there is a way that seems right to a man, but it ends in death. Proverbs 3 and verse 5 says, lean not on your own understanding, but trust in the Lord. That's how we walk. By faith and not by sight. Not pursuing our own ends, but pursuing God's will. In Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16 points out to us how we are to walk. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not carry out the desire of the flesh. In Galatians chapter 5, and this time verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. It is so sad to me today that so many people view these passages as saying they're allowed to do what they want because they think walking by the Spirit means following their internal instincts or their desires, but that's not walking by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit is being governed by the Spirit's revelation and doing what He says, producing love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Against such there is no law. When we walk in those things, based upon the revelation of the Spirit, we are walking by the Spirit. We are guided by the Spirit. We are, when we're doing that, Spirit-filled. As the Father, Son, and Spirit dwell in us and abide with us, 
as we abide with them and abide by their commandments. That's how we must walk. Not as the Gentiles walk, pursuing their own lusts and their own passions, but as the Spirit would have us walk, as revealed in His Word. So if we're going to live no longer as the Gentiles live, we must love no longer as the Gentiles love. We must pray no longer as the Gentiles pray. We must value no longer what the Gentiles value. Lead no longer as the Gentiles lead. Walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. Pursue no longer what the Gentiles pursue. First Peter chapter 4. In First Peter chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you. But they'll give account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The Gentiles pursue a certain thing. They pursue sensuality and lust and drunkenness and carousing and drinking parties and abominable idolatries. And... We have pursued the lusts of our flesh. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, that we had become by nature children of wrath, just like the rest. We've all been there. Even if these, these specific things mentioned in this lust were not ever a part of our lives, we have been just like the Gentiles in pursuing the lusts of our flesh. But now that we are children of God, Peter says, you've done that enough. Put that away from you. No longer pursue what the Gentiles pursue. And of course, here's the thing we need to understand. When we follow this command, the Gentiles won't get it. They'll laugh at us and they'll mock us. They'll make fun of us. They'll taunt us. What, you too good to go drinking with us now? Oh, you've got Jesus now and you're too good to go with your buddies? You know, you used to be fun. They won't understand. When we're no longer pursuing their things, when we're no longer loving as they love or praying as they pray or valuing what they value or leading as they lead or walking as they walk, they won't get it. They'll think we're crazy. And sometimes, they'll make us think we're crazy. And the part of time they'll give us, we'll begin to wonder, is it worth it? But it absolutely is. Second Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22 says, Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. We're no longer pursuing the lusts of the flesh. We're no longer pursuing any of those things, the sensuality, the carousings. We're pursuing righteousness, faith, love, peace. Those are the things that we need to be pursuing if we're going to live no longer as the Gentiles live. What are we pursuing? What are we striving to get our hands on? We need to realize Romans 12, 1 and 2. We are supposed to be different from the world. And we could take the approach of some churches today and be different from the world because we'll have some type of standard of dress code. 
could wear all black and not allow buttons or metal fasteners. We could do that. Or we could take an approach that says you can't ever cut your hair or you're not allowed to wear jewelry or all those kind of things that so many churches that want to be different from the world want to do. But all of those things, those are merely externals. These are the internals. And I'll tell you what, when we're different from the world like this, they won't miss it. And they'll let us know that they didn't miss it because they'll think we're nuts. They won't understand why we're not concerned about what kind of neighborhood we live in. They won't understand why we want to spend so much time with all those people over there at the Franklin Church that don't know how to have fun. They're just always trying to get together and worship God. They won't understand why we won't pursue the things they pursue, why what's fun for them is not fun for us, but will be different from the world. Living no longer as the Gentiles live. No longer loving what they love. No longer praying how they pray. No longer valuing what they value. No longer leading how they lead. Or walking how they walk. Or pursuing what they pursue. But in the end, when we stand before God in judgment, He will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest of your Lord. And isn't that what we want? So the question tonight, how are you living? Sadly, it seems for us that many of us as Christians spend most of our time trying to continue to live in two worlds. Pursuing after the things of this world and trying to balance that with pursuing after the things of Christ. Jesus said, seek first my kingdom and righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Do we believe Him? Let us no longer strive to walk the line, but get as close to Jesus as we possibly can. Being different from the world. I hope this lesson was beneficial in helping you understand exactly how we are supposed to be different from the world, living no longer as the Gentiles live. Let's remember what we learned here. If we want to live no longer as the Gentiles live, we must love no longer as the Gentiles love, pray no longer as the Gentiles pray, value no longer what the Gentiles value, lead no longer as the Gentiles lead, walk no longer as the Gentiles walk, Pursue no longer what the Gentiles pursue. If you have any questions about how we are to be different from the world, or about how Christ was different from the world, or about the Franklin Church of Christ, please give us a call at 615-794-2359. Or you may contact us through our website, franklinchurchofchrist.com. Perhaps someone is giving you this lesson on CD or on audio cassette. If that's the case, may I encourage you and invite you to go to that website I just mentioned, Again, it's franklinchurchofchrist.com. We have numerous lessons there, both in audio and outline format, that you are free to download and use in whatever way you believe will glorify and honor God. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. More importantly, may you richly bless God.